Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay. So uh, it, it's a real pleasure um, to have Harold Hedelman, uh, who's an old dear friend, who whose wedding I performed how many years ago? Well, my wife would kill me if I told you I don't exactly. Oh, uh oh, oh, we will. It was about twenty years ago. A really good guy, Mary Selkirk and Lee Balance, who all work for uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, a really exceptional organization. So I, I think uh, I, I don't want to take more time. I'll let them introduce uh, and, and talk about, uh, about their work and their group. So really wonderful to have you here. Thanks, James. Well, I hope if there's one thing that you are able to take away is it on? Okay. If there's one thing that you can take away, it's understanding that, and, and this was a, an eye-opener for me, is a daily practice, daily life can be such a rewarding practice in terms of the Dharma. And I just, if you can take away from this that it works both ways, that the Dharma can support you in your work in the community and your daily life and being a better human in your daily life, whether it's advocating on behalf of the planet or whatever else you do in daily life. And it works the other way because once you're doing that, what what I have found out, and I hope you'll notice from all three of us, is that when it works in daily life, it strengthens your ability to, to understand that the truths really are true. The teachings really work. And that's that sort of bidirectionality is just wonderfully supportive once it gets going because they're both supporting each other. Uh, it reminds me of a story that you may have heard at one point young woman living in a dorm comes home and visits her parents. She has a budding Buddhist practice. And she comes home and tries to get her parents to meditate. And she tries to explain the teachings. And every time this happens, there's a little more resistance from the family. Finally, she gives up and, and comes home and has a wonderful time. And on the way out, her mom says, Dear, we, we really love you when instead of trying to be a Buddhist, you are just the Buddha. And I think that's what has happened in working in daily life and working in climate advocacy. We're not talking about Buddhism when we're talking to a business leader or a community leader about why they should do something on climate. We're just trying to be as good as we can. And that, that the organization we work with has incorporated a lot of those values. And that's what makes that organization so special for us. So we want to start off by having you guys do a little exercise. Now, we had two choices. Okay. Take a couple of minutes. Think about ways <clears throat> that your own daily life plays a role in your own spiritual growth. Take a couple of minutes with that. Then, just with a neighbor, talk about that for a couple of minutes, both of you. And then we'll just ask for a couple of shares. But think about how does daily life be a practice for you and what have you gotten in terms of support for your spiritual growth? from practicing daily. Okay? Go for it. So first, you want them to, uh, you want them to go internal? Yeah, just quietly think about your own daily life mm -hmm. and how, how you practice in that 
maybe examples, and then we'll share mm-hmm. with each other for a couple of minutes. So take a, take a minute, turn to a partner, and decide how to share your thoughts with each other. So how you bring your practice into your daily life. Why don't you switch now? About halfway through, so make sure each of you gets a chance. Okay. Okay, you can uh, thank your partners and uh, come on back. What's that? He, he goes around. Yeah, he's. So, uh, just uh, um, uh, Harold asked if I'd, if I'd moderate this part and uh, just take a, a few responses. So two, two or three very brief responses. How do you bring your practice into your, uh, into your daily life or how does it express itself? You do bring your practice into your daily life. <laughs> And right next to your lips. Uh, for me, it's a consistent, gentle, I try to be gentle effort to keep the practice alive, to continue to build it. It's young for me. It's only been a few years. And just uh, uh, trying to continue to build and uh, just continue to notice when I'm being unskillful and when I'm off and on autopilot mm. and not bring my practice. Uh, it's much mm. harder to keep it going and to keep it mindful of things when you're doing something really focused, doing some kind of work, mm-hmm. clearing out the inbox, working on a spreadsheet. It's very hard to be mindful and follow your breathing while you're s- stressing out about some work thing. But that's, that's how it comes into my daily mm-hmm. life. Thank you. So noticing when you're being unskillful, when there's something off, that's a, a really good... Uh, way to, to hold the practice. There's something that doesn't feel quite aligned. Thank you. Is it Star over here? Andrew. And wait for the mic. You know, what? I... Hello. Yeah. Um, so there is this word called ekeru, and it's Japanese for kind of a, um, an end but an opening. And so I think for me um, and my spiritual growth, I recognize how pain has un, like helped me unwind. I used to be so uptight and wound up so tight. But as I um, think of the word ekeru and looking at all the things, there's always these little deaths in life, if you think about it every day. Um, and so as I reflect on the pain in my life and the setbacks and disappointments, I recognize those were little deaths of letting things go, like, mm-hmm. hey, yes, I didn't get this. But what, were the, what was the lesson that was learned mm. in this setback? Mm. Um, and being able to reflect on that has helped me grow spiritually. And pain for me and disappointments and et cetera um, has, have probably been the greatest teachers mm. for me. Thank you. That's just what the Buddha says. Suffering, uh, suffering leads to compassion if you hold it well and leads to greater growth and wisdom and understanding. So there's, uh, as, as one of my uh, inspiring teachers says, as long as you're learning, there are no mistakes. And as long as you keep on growing, you're facing in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you.
Excellent. Maybe one more. Uh, is it Peter over here? Well, in you know my daily life, as I was saying to you, this person is... Real close to your mouth, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, daily life seems to uh, be at odds with practice a lot. And uh, so I really try to uh, every so often just slow down, stop, and be attentive to where I am and just say where I am and to feel like this is where I belong and this is where I should be, not where I think I need to be or what I need to do. Um, and so I find that that, that bit of practice in my daily life is uh, is very helpful in you know trying to navigate all the things that seem to be working against that kind of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I, I hope that you can uh, tweak that. That daily life isn't at odds with practice, it, but practice helps you be more present in your daily life. And it sounds like that's that's the direction you're heading. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. How many of you? At one point, watched an inconvenient truth. I thought that would be about right mm-hmm. for Berkeley. Well, I know that uh, that was the, the movie, the film that sort of awakened me to what was happening with climate change. At the time, I was working in a, a, a watershed group here in, in Richmond, and I was working on restoring native oysters. Nothing to do with climate, I thought. But then I started to realize, because we're burning so many fossil fuels, we're changing the chemistry of the ocean, and oysters need the pH of an ocean the way it was, not the what, not what it's changing into. And I realized my work was going to be undone. And then I started to realize, after watching the movie, that not only my work, but the work of a lot of people. And as I started to get what was going on, I started to realize that that movie was a wake-up call for a kind of suffering, a global suffering catastrophe looming and to me that was on the on the parallel to what the buddha saw parallel plane it's global suffering we we recognize that the buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering so i began to think well okay so here i am doing something that's going to get undone what else should i be doing instead of that and i gradually started to learn how to become a climate activist and we often talk about the, the two things that we have to do which is avoid the unmanageable and manage the unavoidable. And the teachings, in that sense, are kind of like doing what we can to avoid the unmanageable. Right? We're, we're all going to get old and sick and die. Those are the three heavenly messengers. Yes, we're going to be learning from our own old age, our, old, our own sickness, and eventually facing the fact of our dying. We can't really change those facts, but we can do things between now and then. And that's the teachings are so much about making the most of those times to deal with the, in the face of those eventualities. And in climate change, as humans, understanding that that's happening, there are things that we can do to avoid the, avoid the things we can't manage and to manage the things that we can. So that's... A, a hopeful message. There really are things that we can do, and that, that's something that CCL does a lot more than a lot of organizations that I'm aware of, because a lot of organizations talk about the problem, but don't have good solutions. And that's one thing that we're really focused on, is a, a first, a great first step. We'll talk a little bit, a bit about that in a minute. But I want uh, Mary, now who's on the board of Citizens Climate Lobby, 
to talk about the organization and let you know a little bit more about how it works, what we've done, where we came from, where we're going. So I'm just going to hand it off to Mary. Hi. I feel very lucky to be here. Thank you. Um, I have been a student of Buddhism off and on since college. Um, I actually took a couple of courses from Jamie over the years. Um, I've been an elected official. I've been involved in different political activities most of my adult life. And it probably will sound kind of odd to you that I will say that this very daunting climate work has been the most joyful um, activism of my life. And it is a lot to do with the organization that we work with. Um, So I'm going to just say a couple of things about Citizens Climate Lobby. As Harold said, we we are focused on what is possible to do to stabilize our planet. Our organization is now 92,000 citizen volunteers all over the world, most of them here in, in the United States. We have chapters in every congressional district across the country. We have doubled in size every year for the last 10 years, and I think there's one reason for that, and that is that this is a, an organization that enables regular people to have breakthroughs in their own personal and political power while building the political will for climate action in Washington. Our organization is very laser-focused. It is phenomenally um, flat. There is enormous permission for everyone who's interested in volunteering to find a way to bring their particular interest and their particular practice to the work of convincing our uh, both sides of the aisle in Washington that there we have a very particular policy proposal that I won't go into now, but fundamentally it's uh, there's so much about the practice of being a citizens climate lobby volunteer that for me is very harmonious with my spiritual practice because every day I wake up and I have the opportunity to ask myself how am I going to orient myself today. Why, and, and to be able to live with the uncertainty of knowing I have no idea whether what I'm doing is going to have an impact. And I think getting being able to sit with that and to know that that's the experience of infinity in part and just the unfolding of the universe, which we all derive a lot of, I think, um, equanimity from in our practice. So just to give you an example, and then I'm going to turn it over to Lee. Uh, The first thing we do when we are training citizen volunteers, starting a new group anywhere in the country or in the world, we have chapters now in over 30 countries, including 12 in sub-Saharan Africa, all of whom are working on training themselves to be effective lobbyists on behalf of the planet, which is just amazing to me. The first exercise that we ask everyone in the training to do is to think about what they love. So we open this exercise with a quote from E.B. White, famous writer. He wrote Charlotte's Web. Most of you know Charlotte's Web. But he also wrote for The New Yorker for many years. And it goes something like this. I arise each morning torn between a desire to save the world and an inclination to savor it. 
This makes it hard to plan the day. (laughs) But if we forget to savor the world, what possible reason do we have to save it? In a way, savoring comes first. And I think there's no more powerful way for us to open our hearts to what we love than the teachings of the Buddha and the Dharma. And that kind of opening and working from our practice as Citizens Climate Lobby volunteers is always, always embedded in approaching any elected official, and we know there are lots of them that we don't agree with, with appreciation, gratitude, and respect. Because our commitment is to transformation of relationships and developing a way for every person that we work with in the U.S. Congress to get in touch with what they savor themselves, to transcend the partisanship aspect of climate action. So that's all I'm going to say. Hi. uh, I want to thank you all for being here also and say that I'm very happy to be here. Uh, my name is Lee Balance. I'm a retired physician. I worked at the Herrick Emergency Room when Herrick had an emergency room. Uh, and so if I saw any of you there, I, I hope it was good. <laughs> uh, and um, where to start? I, you know, I've been a, a social justice person most of my life. I uh, have cared uh, about being outdoors. I've cared about making the world a better place. And it just seemed natural. Well, we went on a long uh, bike ride when I retired. And someone came down the aisle and said, I want to tell you about Citizens Climate Lobby. And I was in the middle of a conversation with somebody else. And I didn't tell him uh, where to go at that point. Uh, and uh, when I got back, I joined the Climate Lobby. And it's an e- that's an example of one of the ways my practice plays in, which is that I am very conscious of my of a judgmental nature, which doesn't usually get expressed, but nonetheless, it afflicts me. Uh, And so we deal with that all the time and dealing with the arising of judgment and dealing with it. Recently, a legislator joined a group that we were instrumental in starting called the Climate Solutions Caucus. The caucus started off with two uh, South uh, Florida politicians, a Republican, uh, Carlos Curbelo, and a a Democrat Ted Deutsch, and they said, we want to talk about bipartisan solutions to, co- to climate change. And they came up with a rule that you could only join if you came in with uh, someone from the other party. <laughs> and we were up to about 22 at the election, and then it dropped to, I think, 17 or so. And you might wonder what happened. Well, what's happened is it's now 66 people, 33 Republicans and 33 Democrats who are more or less talking to each other about what they might be able to do. And one of the recent Republicans that joined is someone whose first act in Congress was to introduce a bill outlawing the EPA. And, um, of course, my uh, my judgmental nature, as well as many other people's, was, what's he doing here? He doesn't belong in this bipartisan group. And then someone said, well, he actually believes that climate change is real and human-induced, and we need to do something about it. He just doesn't like regulation. And I went, well, okay, I guess I have to look a little deeper into my uh, thinking about things. 
So that's my story. Do you want me to go on with the, uh, with the Four Noble Truths for a moment? So uh, Mary and I were lucky enough to go to uh, a Donald Rothberg talk at Spirit Rock uh, in 2013, actually. I think it was late. Uh, no, it was 2014. It was around Earth Day, at which he talked. And these are all available on Dharma Seed. And his, he, he's a much richer person to listen to than me, but I'll give you an outline. Because he formulated what he called the Four Noble Truths uh, of Responding to Climate Change. And the first is climate change is real. There's a problem. And we have to understand the realities that confront us. And we can't let our practice degenerate into putting us in some wonderful space that is disconnected from the world around us. That we have to stay and we have to look at what's true and what's real. And there's a cause, the second noble truth. And the cause is... Our use of fossil fuels and our uh, cutting down forests uh, for uh, growing palm oil and beef. And there are external kind of reasons such as that, and there are internal reasons. Consumerism, our business as usual, our hope that somehow or rather somebody else is going to take care of this for us, uh, the domination of our political systems by medians, self-interest. And... We look deeper and we see that there is a solution, that we could have a more sustainable, better, and and more just world. And what would that look like? And then there's a pathway to uh, the solution. We need to reduce emissions as rapidly as possible. We need to build resilience into current systems. Uh, Someone said we have three choices confronting climate change. We can adapt We can mitigate, which means do what we can to uh, stop making things worse, or we can suffer, and we just have to decide uh, which of those we want to emphasize. And Donald is instrumental in helping me understand that there's the outer world of things we can do, and then there's the inner world. And these are a few of the things that he listed. Understanding. Compassion. Compassion not only for... Uh, other people and other who have views other than we do, but compassion for ourselves because we can't help but be part of this problem today. But we can, and we have to forgive ourselves for being part of the problem. And then we have to think how we want to be part of the solution. There's interdependence and the sense of finding a way to be together and exercising non-harmfulness. And then I wanted to say very briefly a few things about the outer responses that we can do. One of the most important things is to talk to our friends and neighbors about our, in, our concerns about climate change because it turns out that a lot of people just don't talk about this. And it turns out, not surprisingly, that things are not talked about become non-issues. It seems like it's not important. I don't hear about this day in and day out. It happens with the media. A recent study tells us that in all of the studies, uh, stories about uh, extreme weather events, only 4% of news stories across the country mentioned climate change. So you would think it's not part of the story. Take action at home and at work. Do what you can. Change your light bulbs. Buy an efficient car. Uh, talk, uh, you know, recycle. 
One very important thing everybody could do tonight is to go online and write to your congressperson because they suffer from the same problem. They hear about everything else, but they don't hear about climate change every day from their constituents. You can join an organization. You can help take care of each other in, in your community and in your sangha. And uh, I'm going to put in one plug, which is sign up for CCL. And you can do that either by going online to citizensclimatelobby.org and signing up. And you'll, we'll put your name on our mailing list and we'll never ask you for a penny. We'll be, well, we will ask you for a penny, but you don't have to pay anything to join. And the, and it helps us to know when we can go and say, as is true, that we have doubled our membership every year. That's very powerful when we go to talk to Barbara Lee or Mark DeSolnia or Kamala Harris. And so join, if you will. I left a sign-up sheet in the back. I left some cards. And I'm going to close. No, I'm going to tell you the other four noble truths of climate change, which are uh, from Anthony Lacerowitz at the Yale Climate Change Communication Center. And this is the simple version. It's real. It's us. It's bad. But there is hope. And I'll close with a quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh from Donald's talk. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world, and then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. Thank you. Can I? So... Uh, this is uh, this is really uh, wonderful to hear, and I and I've heard not just from from you uh, when we've spoken, Harold, but from others and some inspiring people for me who are very committed to Citizens Climate Lobby. And I'm wondering, say, suppose somebody is here in in, in the group wanting to participate, wanting to do something, and this seems like a a, a, a good organization. Uh, what would they do? What would be the practical steps besides putting your name on? Do you get trained? Do you, uh, do you, are you given a, a task, an assignment, or do you just say, okay, I'm a member of Citizens Climate Lobby? But where does it, where does it go from there? Uh, nuts and bolts, what would be their, somebody's next steps? Well, chances are anybody in this room would end up in the Alameda chapter which is one of the most successful in the country. We have a, uh, by the way, this weekend, even if anybody wanted to go, I think there's still room. We have a regional conference down in Menlo Park, and the Alameda chapter has got more than twice as many people than any other chapter in Northern California coming. So it's very active. It's been very successful. And one of the things, and yes, we do train, and the training never stops. Not only do people practice to the extent that they engage in advocacy every week or every month, depending on how much they uh, have available to participate. But there is an incredible infrastructure that we have created for the volunteers. And it's, it's all on a wonderful website that can be overwhelming, but there is so much information there, and, and it covers everything from the science of climate change, the science of the solution, the sociology of the resistance to, uh, that we find in the United States. How do you overcome that? How to talk to people about it without scaring them. We put hope first. I want to talk a little bit more about the hope that we can offer because there are solutions not only to 
stop polluting the atmosphere, but to return the atmosphere to a, a, a more stable condition over time. So there's this incredible training mechanism, and it's not just book learning. It's like you can learn about it, and you go talk to, talk to people about it. Leah's completely right. The spiral of silence is something we work on all the time. And at the bottom of the spiral is what happens when people don't hear an issue being talked about. They don't talk about it either, and that feeds in on itself. So if you start talking about it, it doesn't mean you talked about it people in Berkeley, but maybe you've got family members or colleagues that work in other parts of the country. The more you talk about it, the more it's going to get talked about. So that's extremely important. And a lot of our training is about what to talk about and how to talk about it. We have what we call little laser talks. They're like about uh, elevator speech size in a big building. You know, maybe it takes a minute or two to, to get a, a, dar- a laser talk down. <laughs> I just want to say a little bit about what you could actually expect if you went to a monthly meeting in Berkeley. Good. Because what we do in every monthly meeting is basically the methodology of the organization that happens everywhere across the country, everywhere across the world, and is embodied in every meeting we have with a member of Congress. We do four things in every meeting. We get educated about an issue. Every month there is an international call that thousands of CCL volunteers listen to a speaker talking about some aspect of either climate change or transformational relationships or um, moral foundations of uh, political ideologies, all kinds of stuff. So we educate ourselves. We inspire ourselves by learning about successes that we've had in our own, in a monthly meeting, any successes we've had that month within our chapter. And we practice every month. We practice a laser talk with each other. We practice communicating on some important issue. And finally, every month, people commit to take action. And that can be in any number of different action teams that go everything from um, the liaison lobbying team, who are people who uh, arrange meetings with our member of Congress or or her staff, both here and in Washington. Um, People are members of the media team that Lee heads up. Uh, we have people re- reading every single newspaper in the area every day, sending out notices to our mailing list for people who want to write letters to the editor. We have an outreach team, uh, you know, a whole cadre of folks who love to give talks to rotary clubs, to churches, to businesses about the work of CCL. We have a member engagement action team of people who are into the care and feeding of ourselves and, you know, bringing food every week. So, And the marvelous thing about CCL is that it embodies, I think, what the all of us know as spiritual practitioners, that we all have to engage from where we are, what enlivens us, mm. what mm. we savor, what mm. we love. Mm. And there's a tremendous permission within this organization for everyone to operate from that foundation because that's the only way if you meet with a member of Congress that you're going to have any kind of authentic or or you're giving a talk at a junior college or wherever that you're going to connect with people Mm -hmm. about what you want to share with them. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, you know, I have to tell you a story that Michael Brune is the head of the Sierra Club 
gave this talk at a big fundraising dinner for Bay Nature magazine a few years ago. And he talked about climate change, but I think a lot of people were disappointed. They thought he was going to talk about bunnies and, you know, the wilderness and stuff like that. But instead he talked about the clean power plan and climate change. And at one point, there were like 350 people in the room, and he said, how many of you, when I say the words global warming, you get excited? Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee and I were the only two people that <laughs> raised our hands. We were like, we know there's something we can do about this, and we're working on this, and we're finding a way to talk to the people across the aisle who we really think are morons because we understand that we're all the same in some very fundamental way. Mm. And we have to find a way to transcend the kind of hyper-individualism and hyper-partisan uh, environment we're in. Mm. So. I, one one more question and then uh, can, for me, and then uh, I want to open it up. You, uh, I completely agree. If you don't talk about something... It just is under the radar and unconscious. And just like you were saying, when people hear global warming or climate change, there's a kind of contraction and fear. You know, even if you're getting people to talk about what they savor, which is a beautiful thing to do, which is what I loved so much about Inconvenient Truth, um, how, uh, how do you... Um, how do you bring up the conversation without there being that contraction and, oh, I don't want to go there and working with the fear or the resistance or, so that it becomes a kind of uh, inspirational conversation and you're so good at, at listening. That's, from what I hear, one of the main, one of the main uh, methodologies is learning to listen. How can you bring something up and, and uh, not have it devolve into uh, into a conversation about how awful things are and uh, and fear um, so well I think it's a pretty well known fact that if you just bring up a problem and that's as far as you go people do shut down because if it's not if it doesn't have a solution don't bother me you know it just makes my day feel worse but if you have solutions to offer and you, you can talk about them, more or less in the same breath, then people don't shut down as much. And that's what we do. We have a couple, a couple of solutions, at least me personally. There's the, the solution that Citizens Climate Lobby, which is a, a fairly simple policy. It's basically a price on pollution. Carbon tax. It's a, it's a carbon tax. And mm-hmm. that, will cha- that works, uses the market dynamics to make it more costly to pollute, and it promotes everything else that doesn't. So it's fairly simple. Uh, it's not hard to understand. We are well-trained on explaining it in an elevator <laughs> or anywhere else quickly. And then beyond that, we are also learning now to talk about what we do beyond just stopping polluting, but how to draw down the pollution that's already up there, which gets us back to a healthy climate. And that's another part of the solution because we say to people, what kind of a climate do you want to leave your children? The same kind of climate you inherited from your parents? If so... We've got to act on these these solutions. And so that's how we do it. We offer the solutions at the same time. I want to follow up on something that um, Mary stressed, which is how we act uh, respectfully and with appreciation. This is a, a, a story I was really fortunate to be part of. We were in Washington, D.C., meeting with a very conservative congressman from Arkansas who was a climate denier. 
and we had an appointment for a face-to-face meeting with him, and we went into these, they're very small rooms in in the congressional offices in D.C., and we're in this room, and, and there's no congressman. I mean, his staff is there, and we're sort of, well, I guess we're just going to have to start. We started talking, and we start, as we always do, as Mary said, with an appreciation. And the appreciation was for some watershed work that he had done in Arkansas to improve a particular watershed. And as soon as we were done with that, we heard a voice came out from the, behind a closed door. Wow. That was my favorite project. <laughs> and out came the congressman and sat down, and we had a wonderful conversation. And it's amazing how a simple thing like starting the conversation that way, he probably was hiding in that other room just say, I don't want to listen to these guys throw eggs at me. And we didn't. And he came out. Lovely. So I think it's your turn for questions. Well, I, I wanted to say one other thing. I, I, and uh, I will. <laughs> we, can, we can do this. Oh, okay, you know each other. Huh? I wanted to... I just wanted to take off for a second on what Mary said, and uh, another quotation that Donald Rothberg had from Howard Thurman, who was an African-American activist. He said, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so if we love CCL, we're happy to have all of you join us. But if there's something else that sings more to you, I would encourage you to do that, but get active and and do what what brings you brings life into your life. Thank you. So we can open it up. Anyone have some questions or? Hi. Well, you were talking. Think about what you love. Well, I love chocolate, and I remember I just read recently that the cacao bean is very very threatened by climate change, and in fact it might go extinct. So I think if you told people this, you would get a lot, you would get a lot more interest in advocacy. I know I'm not the only chocolate lover out there. So we should come around with chocolate and say, enjoy this now. And if you want to enjoy it later, do something about climate change. Lee. That's so appropriate because just in the last uh, couple of weeks, we had a, a really good pair of conversations with the uh, sustainable sustainability director of Mars. I mean the Mars, the candy company, not somebody from Mars up there. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if they need a sustainability director up there. And it's true. 2050 is a day that a, a number of scientists have said chocolate cultivation, cacao cultivation could essentially be over if we don't turn things around. So they are really concerned about that, but they're a very progressive company anyway. But they're they're really willing to sign up with us and bring their lobbying leverage with us to Washington. I, I run an action team for Citizens Climate Lobby that engages with businesses, and that's the kind of relationship where they recognize a bottom line threat and they start to become very active, and that's happening more and more. Mm. So very good point. Thank you. Uh, just for a quick question, I'd be interested in hearing a, a couple of minutes about the origins of the organization. Who started it? Where? What, what was the vision or the inspiration? Well, uh, a retired or an almost retired real estate tycoon from Texas, if you can believe it, uh, 
started doing work on childhood malnutrition and childhood poverty globally. He was within an organization called Results that was started by a guy named Sam Daly Harris. Sam's methods are the methods that we used. Sam was a high school teacher, and he discovered fairly quickly that kids didn't even know who their congressman was. And he said, well, how can we change the things that are wrong on this planet and deal with these kinds of problems? And he began working on this issue of malnutrition and and poverty for kids around the world. And he built the organization called Results to a point where they were able to multiply by a power of 10 the budget from the United States to tackle that problem. And this was about 15, just before an inconvenient truth. So Marshall, the guy who started this, was engaged with uh, this effort to deal with childhood malnutrition and poverty. He became responsible literally for a million microloans in the developing world. And then he watched an inconvenient truth and said, okay, my loans are going to go for naught because these people are going to get flooded out by sea level rising, etc. And then he decided to start Citizens Climate Lobby and use the same kinds of methods that he had learned with results. So he started, Marshall lives in San Diego. At his first meeting, he had 28 of his closest friends show up. And that was in, Marshall did. In Washington. No, in San Diego. no, first in San Diego. So the first lobby um, group from CCL was about 20, maybe 24 people in Washington in 2007. This last June, we had 900 people on the Hill. We had 1,300 people at our conference. So literally every year, it has grown just through people going on bicycle rides and, you know, just by word of mouth and um, the spread throughout. And we've also been very active internationally through the United Nations, um, which um, we, Lee and I were fortunate enough to go to Paris as well. And I just wanted to say something about that, which is the power of the Sangha that we all understand. To have been in Paris two years ago with 50,000 people from all over the world, from Tibet, from uh, rural Oklahoma, uh, all over South America, South Asia, equatorial countries from all over the world, uh, coming together to find a solution. It was very, very powerful. So. Mm. Thank you. So in the back. Yeah. Um, so as a young, pretty avid social media user, someone who's like, you know, online quite a bit, I guess, um, I see, you know, so much like I'm just constantly bombarded by negative news, I feel, and just negative stories because it's, you know, what really gets the clicks, what really gets that. And um, I was just wondering if you could recommend really anywhere that I could find positive stories on things that are happening either in the Bay Area or around the world um, that are kind of... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Citizens Climate Lobby has a pretty active Twitter feed. We're, we've got blog posts happening regularly, and it's mostly our internal news, our news about what we've accomplished, but a lot is happening very rapidly. So that's almost always good news. Thank you. You can follow uh, Catherine Hayhoe, H-A-Y-H-O-E, um, who's a evangelical climate scientist from, te- well, from Canada, but now in Texas. Uh, she's always uh, has fun comments on things. 
Anyone else? Any other um, questions? Hi, I'm Linda, and I was active in a um, spiritual environmental group for several years, and I left because, for whatever reason, I was overwhelmed with guilt. I couldn't do enough. I couldn't lead a environmentally clean life well enough. And so how do you avoid guilt? That's a very good question. Um, two things I w- would share. One is something that Wes Nisker said at one um, meditation class after I went to after a meeting of the um, American Geophysical Union, the AGU. They meet every year in December in San Francisco. And uh, my brother had sent me the PowerPoint of this keynote talk about coral reefs and how the coral reefs were all going to be gone by 2070. I was so distraught. You know, so I'm like, okay, Wes Nisker, what do you say about this? And he, how do I handle it? You know, and he said, you know, we have to remember it's not our fault. We are doing what the human mind has evolved to do up to this point. But as far as the call to response to that, I think we also can learn from the Dharma about understanding that we have no control over knowing the impact of what we do. We really don't know. You know, you have no way of of knowing. You have to somehow find a way, I think, to reside with compassion with the limits of your own knowledge about what impact you are having. And none of us will know the impact of what we're doing today. I have no idea if what I'm doing on any given day is going to have any impact. But I kind of figure, what else am I going to do? You know, I just do my best. Mm, Thanks, I thought a little bit about, um, I don't remember who I was practicing with, but at the end of every meditation, you would dedicate the merits of this meditation to the enlightenment of all sentient beings, which seems like an even more colossal task than reversing climate change. And yet every every meditation session, we would, would say, mm-hmm. I dedicate this to the enlightenment of all sentient beings. And so you, you take on these tasks and, and you... You have no idea what's going to happen. But I agree with Mary. What else am I going to do? I totally uh, understand where you're coming from with this guilt problem, coming from a Jewish family. Um, But I think you're right. If you do the best you can externally, in whatever ways you can, you have to kind of accept you're, you're at this point in time in a culture that has governing the way you're living more than you can have the choice to change. So you do, you do the best you can, and once you start to realize that you are doing the best you can, you can allow yourself a little bit of that bliss of blamelessness, you know. <laughs> Feel free, because actually it will help you be better at it anyway. And you're, if you're doing the best you can, what more could you really do? This is the things are the way they are. Don't be attached to them being different than they are. Except, go ahead and do the best you can. I'm feeling a little greedy here, um, um, but 
Donald had a, a quote from a second century rabbi that um, he mentioned at the end of a recent talk he did about um, climate, responding to climate change. Uh, and what, what you said made me think of this. It just goes like this. It is not upon you to finish the work. Neither are you free to desist from it. Well, I really um, uh, so appreciate both you, you coming here and also the the, the message that you uh, that you bring from from the organization. One of both uh, not making others with different perspectives wrong, but really listening and and bringing out what they love and getting and having a, a conversation that's. Uh, filled with appreciation and respect. And I think we can all learn a lot more to have that attitude when we're trying to be less divisive and more, uh, we're all in this together. Like uh, Buckminster Fuller said, we're all uh, passengers, passengers on spaceship Earth. Uh, and also the, the idea of um, coming from a place of our own uh, joyful responsibility, as Julia Butterfly Hill says, that you're you're doing this not out of fear and and uh, and and despair, but of wanting to make a difference, and that in itself is tremendously engaging and magnetizing for others to join, uh, instead of just uh, shrugging their shoulders and saying, I, I I don't know what I can do, but if people can feel your own uh, aliveness and joy in it, uh, they're more inclined to say, hey, I want to I get ahead of that kind of energy as well. So um, just to be clear, here, why don't you take the, take, the, uh, take the mic because it's being recorded. Yeah. I think what James is handing at here is that what we're doing is our way of giving giving back. I mean, we've all had so much given to us. What an incredible time to grow up in the, at this point of history. And, and as volunteers, which is what we are, this is our way of being generous and giving back. Mm-hmm. Thank you. May, may it inspire many more uh, to, to do the same. And just uh, finding what, uh, what really speaks to you uh, as uh, Andrew Harvey says, I, I love his line, follow your heartbreak and, uh, and find out where you, your heart is really tender. And then as you put your energy towards that, it uh, frees up your anxiety and, your, uh, and, and feels like you're making a contribution. So um, I hope we can all do that in whatever way uh, moves us, uh, whether it's climate change or, or another uh, consciousness uh, issue, but this one, the earth is really needing us and rooting for us and probably praying for us. Wake up, people. So we're all ambassadors for that. We're all uh, agents of, uh, of the earth to um, just express our appreciation and, and love. And, and thanks so much for the work that you're doing. Yeah. And then just get in touch with your own caring. There's a place 
in you that really does care. You wouldn't be here on a Thursday night if that weren't so. And just appreciate that's a very intrinsic part of who you are. And appreciate that in yourself. Wish yourself well. And then extending that out to others may all connect with their caring for themselves, for their loved ones, and uh, especially for the planet. And find ways to express that caring. And in the process, know true joy and well-being and peace. And may our coming here together have a beneficial effect that ripples out to touch all beings everywhere and to our uh, wonderful planet, our home. Thank you very much for coming. Good to be with you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.